Hi, welcome to episode 346 of COVID Calls. It's a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, with a diverse set of uh, folks uh, who are disaster experts and other experts around the world. My name is Kristen Urquiza, and I am guest hosting for the day. Uh, for those of you who do not know me, I am the co-founder and co-executive director of Marked by COVID. It's a national grassroots-powered nonprofit. Um, we promote accountability, um, recognition, justice, and a pandemic-free future by elevating truth and science. And it was founded just days after I lost my Mexican-American father, Mark Anthony, to the virus last uh, June 30th of 2020. And I'm coming to you live from San Francisco, California. And I'm very excited uh, for this discussion today. I will be bringing on uh, a set of parents and educators who um, have really been on the front line of this pandemic when it comes to both uh, their own families and the families of, of communities around them. Um, they also have all lost a partner um, in this pandemic. So uh, joining me today will be Pamela Addison, Jerry Vance, and Ebony Janes. Um, so in addition to um, you know managing the grief of losing a loved one, they are also juggling a host of different issues, whether it's loss of income from um, their partner, the grief um, of their children, and just about everything else that goes into parenting now, juggling that um, solo. So we'll dig into that for in just a few moments, but a couple of housekeeping uh, pieces first. Um, as a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we have a YouTube channel, um, COVID Calls YouTube. And you can also hear COVID calls anytime recorded on podcasts, such as Spotify or iTunes or wherever you happen to tune in. Um, and please keep in contact with us. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. And if you'd like to keep up with what I'm doing and Marked by COVID, you can follow at Marked by COVID to keep up on um, our activities as well. And please don't feel, uh, feel free to reach out um, with any ideas you may have for guests, topics, or uh, discussion points. So today, um, we are at September 28th, 2021. And looking at the numbers across the world and in the United States, we are still very much in the thick of this pandemic. Um, we are nearing a incredible benchmark of nearly 5 million deaths across the world. We're at 4,761,734 deaths. And here in the United States, we are about to surpass an unimaginable 700,000 lives lost. We are at 692,058 deaths as of today. And that's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Respo Resource Center. Seven, nearly 700,000 deaths. 
So today we are going to spend our time exploring the impact of this virus specifically on children. Now, taking a step back, we've been speaking a little bit about children here in the US um, in the context of back to school. And just a few weeks ago, I was guest hosting uh, with a group of educators and others uh, from Arizona who were working to ensure that their back to school season um, would be safe and that a ban on masking would not impact uh, local schools from deciding whether or not they wanted to institute common sense safety measures. Luckily, just yesterday, a judge uh, ruled that um, the attempts were unconstitutional. And for now, the people of Arizona can breathe a little deeper that they can continue working with their school boards and other parents and caretakers and community members to ensure that their kids can um, go to school safely as we work towards COVID-free schools. Um, well, with the focus of in-person learning, I think it's been a very right thing to do for COVID advocates to focus on removing barriers towards safe schools. Um, but there are many other issues um, facing children today. The other issue that comes to mind is vaccination, something that we talk a lot about. When will the vaccines be approved for children under 12? And this has been an issue that's been in the news uh, recently because there was um, data sent to the FDA on, uh, on uh, trial information for vaccines for children under the age 12, of the age of 12. And it will still take several weeks to have the FDA analyze that and make recommendations based upon that data. But even with uh, us moving in the right direction on vaccines for children, we're still missing a huge elephant in the, in the room. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. This is also something that will continue to be an issue as we uh, move forward out of the crisis part of the pandemic into the recovery phase. And that is, what about the children who have lost a parent or a caretaker? to this pandemic. According to the Wall Street Journal, uh, who ran a report yesterday, there are more than a million children um, worldwide who have lost a primary caretaker to uh, this pandemic. And here in the United States, we um, estimate, according to data available by the CDC and interpreted by ABC News, that more than 140,000 children have lost a primary or secondary caretaker to the virus. Uh, earlier this year, it was estimated that um, nearly 43,000 children had lost a primary caretaker. Um, one of the reasons why these are just estimates is that we're not doing enough to really track um, the impacts of the virus on children. But what we do know is that many children in the United States have lost a parent and I think about this on a couple of reasons why we need to care about it. First and foremost, these children are just entering into their lives and dealing with the grief of a parent has got to be monumental. Uh, doing some digging around what, you know, what does bereavement look for, for, for children, 
I came across um, this quote from uh, Maria Collins, who heads up the New York Life Foundation's Grief Sensitive Schools Initiative. She said, grief can have a serious impact on learning, academic performance, and can lead to behavioral issues and societal withdrawal. She continues, it's really important that we understand and acknowledge that these losses exist and figure out how they impact um, how children learn and how they are presented in the classroom. So grief is one issue that um, these children are navigating both here and across the world. But there's also other issues um, that might be directly a little bit more indirect to the child itself, but direct to the environment of uh, the child. And one thing that I think of um, on this topic is loss of income. Um, and just putting myself kind of in this situation, I've often thought about what would my life be like if this pandemic had happened 25 years ago when I was still a young teenager living at home with my parents. Um, I continue to kind of play that out. My dad was the primary breadwinner. He was actually the only person in our, you know, my immediate family who had a full-time job that was paying. My mother took care of her elderly and sick mother, my grandmother, for uh, nearly seven years. And while that was a very important job, it wasn't a job that uh, brought in income. And just kind of playing that out further, realizing that, you know, we would have most likely have lost our home. We would have needed to rely on uh, a social safety net or, you know, extended family members to take us in. I wonder if I would have gone to college. Um, I can only imagine that I would have been compelled to instead try and find a position to, you know, help pay the bills as soon as possible to keep, um, you know, to help care for my aging grandmother who was part of our uh, nuclear family at that point in time. And while I'm lucky that that didn't happen to me per se, that is happening to literally tens of thousands of children across this across this country. Their parents are being forced to make impossible decisions uh, while still taking care of their children, managing the complexities of parenting solo, going back to work, and so much more. So I'm going to pause uh, with my introduction of just this issue itself and actually bring on the real experts to talk about this. I'm so lucky to be joined by not only three parents, but three parents who are also in the field of education. Um, I'm going to take a moment to introduce each of them and um, then invite them onto the podcast to connect. So first of all, I'm going to be joined by Pamela Addison. She lost her husband, a healthcare worker, at the very start of the pandemic. And she has two children, uh, ages three and a half and just 22 months. And a few months after losing her husband, she um, founded the Facebook group called Young Widows and Widow Widowers of COVID-19. And she became a COVID advocate for young widows and young children. Also joining us is Ebony James who lost her husband, Terrence James. Um, both worked in public education and they have three children who will forever be changed by the loss of their father and her best friend. And last but certainly not least, I have Jerry Vance joining me. 
Jerry lost her husband, James, on New Year's Day. And she has three children, 22, 12, and eight. 51 days after losing her husband, she also lost her mother-in-law to COVID. She joined up with Pamela in the Young Widows group and decided to turn her pain into advocating for her children and other families living with the devastation of this pandemic. Um, thank you, each and every one of you, for joining the call today. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about your stories and then dig into the issues facing both you and other uh, families that you see out there. Um, Pamela, I'm going to start with you. Tell us a little bit about your story and where you're calling in from. Um, so I'm calling in from Waldwick, New Jersey. Um, at, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, my husband was a speech pathologist um, uh, in the hospital. Uh, so he assessed people's swallowing abilities and um, he went into work every day knowing the risks because they, we were not prepared. Um, he had a fight to get an N95 mask. And um, around two weeks after shutdown, he started with his symptoms um, and it just went downhill from there. He spent 26 days in the hospital. So April 3rd was the last day I ever saw my husband as he was being brought down on the stretcher from our bedroom. And um, he fought hard. Um, and I, it was very unexpected because two hours before he died, the doctor told me that it was going to be better tomorrow. And two hours later, I got the phone call that he went into cardiac arrest and was gone. So at the time of his death, I had a five-month-old and my daughter had just turned two. And that was also the time on the news, you were just hearing that, oh, if you're young, this is going to be like a really bad flu and you'll recover. So I really had this assumption that I was all alone in this and that I, no one was ever going to understand what I went through and kind of asking myself, why am I this young widow? If why, why him? He was young. He was healthy. I didn't understand it. So, um, you know, I kind of went through my adjusting in grief. And then a few months later, I still realized that now I was hearing more about young people. And when I wrote a um, op-ed for NewJersey.com, there were so many young widows commenting on it. And I was like, oh my goodness, it's been like six months and people still think they're alone. I need to do something. And that's when I founded um, Young Widows and Widowers of COVID-19, because I didn't want anyone to ever feel alone like I did. I understand that. Um, and since the founding of um, that group, I know that you've connected with, um, you know, folks all across the country um, who have shared your, um, you know, experience. I know one of those is Jerry, um, who is joining us today. Um, Jerry, I'd love to bring you into the conversation and hear about um, your story, as well as, um, you know, how you connected up with Pamela. Um, well, I'm from Princeton, West Virginia. And last, well, I guess, you know, through when the pandemic started, stuff, my husband was a police officer. Um, so we were like extremely cautious. He would come home, change in the garage, come straight in and shower. Um, more so, he was just a very protective father. So he was terrified of bringing something in to his kids. Um, he did retire last June. 
we were lucky that he, you know, he was finally like, I'm to the point, I'm going to retire. I want to spend more time with my kids. I've missed out on a lot already because of the way they like 12 hour shifts and things. And, uh, last December, I don't know. He started with a little cough and we really didn't think much of it because we had been very careful. And then I got it like a tickle in my throat and like kind of like a sinus infection feeling. And I went and I actually tested positive first. So then I immediately, we went to, I told him, I was like, Hey, get the girls ready. We're all going to get tested. And our entire family ended up being positive. Um, all four of us had different symptoms. Um, that was on December the 4th. On December the 7th, he went to our local hospital. Um, he, we really thought he would get some medicine, get some fluids, come home. Um, he was still breathing okay. I mean, he would cough and lose his breath, but we really thought we were ahead of it. And he called me and told me that they didn't have a bed to admit him at our local hospital and that they were going to send him to West Virginia University, which is about three, three and a half hours away from where I live. And which is fine because it's one of the biggest hospitals in the state. It's a great hospital. So I felt confident that he was going there. Um, they didn't get him there until about midnight, 10 o'clock the next morning, the doctors call and have the conversation with me that they need to make me his power of attorney because they need to put him on a vent. And he was awake, obviously, and having the conversation. And he was like, "It's they say it's better to get ahead of it. And so they put him on the vent on the 8th. That night, they called the hospital, called me back and said, hey, we have to put him on ECMO. We don't have a bed for that. We need to send him to Pittsburgh. So then he ends up five hours away, at least between five and six hours, depending on traffic. Um, so they flew him to Pittsburgh for the ECMO machine. Um, he did great with the ECMO. I mean, some of the nurses and the doctors there, they were talking, they were calling him strong man. Um, he still was very much physically like a police officer. He had also been a Marine. So like he was strong in decent shape, you know, and like the nurses were calling him strong man and they were all bragging about how great he was doing. Um, he come off of the ECMO in eight days, which is rather quick for what most people are staying on it. Um, they moved him from the ECMO unit to just the regular COVID ICU. He made progress progress there every day. Um, they had the vent down to the lowest setting by like day 14. By, um, he come off of the vent on day 19. And they told us, you know, like they were talking with me about bringing him home and like services he would need, physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech therapy. And in my mind, when they started saying all these therapies, I thought they wouldn't be wasting their resources if they truly didn't think he was getting better. Well, our 12-year-old, our middle child, her birthday is on New Year's Eve. So, like, we had set these goals all December. Like, we were hoping we could talk to him before Christmas. And then it was like, well, at least we hope we can talk to him on Julia's birthday. And we actually did. We got to have a great conversation with him. I'm so thankful for it. Um, he couldn't really talk very much where his throat was 
still kind of really messed up from the vent, but he was off of the vent. He was alert and he knew what we were saying and he could kind of whisper so that we would understand him. And I had had to hire a plumber that day. So I was like, James Vance, you better get better because I had to hire a plumber today. It probably did not get fixed the way you would want it fixed. So you need to get better and come home. And he like rolled his eyes at me and my, my girls were like, Oh, look at daddy. He's getting back a normal rolling his eye. Cause we just always pick back and forth and stuff like that. And we went out to eat for my daughter's birthday. Um, we came back probably around 10 o'clock. I called his nurse and I was like, can you just tell him that we're going to watch the ball drop, but we love him. Let him know we're thinking about him. And the nurse called me back and was like, I just wanted you to know I went in and told him and he had the biggest smile on his face. And he said, I think it really done him good to get to talk to you guys earlier. So, you know, like I went to sleep happy for the first time in a month. We'd had a normal conversation with him and they were talking about therapy. So in my mind, he was getting better. He was coming home. And then the next morning, I actually slept probably eight and a half hours that night, which was the most I had slept in one stint the entire time. And I don't know if it was the exhaustion where I actually had COVID or if it was like peace of mind where I thought he was finally had turned the corner. Um, one of the doctors had actually told me, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this. I don't like to say it, but I'm pretty sure we're out of the woods. So I was just, you know, I was relaxed. And the next morning when I got up and I realized that I had slept until 9 a.m., it caught me off guard. And as soon as I called, everybody kept transferring me around. It was, hold on, like nobody would get his nurse. The nursing staff had gotten to know me by that point. And I would just call and say, hey, this is Jerry Vance. Can I talk to James's nurse for the day? And it was weird. It was like, yeah, hold on. And then somebody else got on the phone. And we're like, oh, hold on. Was the nursing supervisor on the phone with you? And then it was, hey, the charge nurse wants to talk to you. But it was like every, I would be on hold for like four or five minutes. And in my mind, I knew then I was like, something is going on and nobody wants to tell me. So um, I kind of while I'm on hold. I text one of my best friends and I was like, she's an RN. I said, listen, you. I need you to find out what's going on. Call. Here's his code. See what they'll tell you. I'm getting dressed. I'm going to Pittsburgh. And she was like, no, you don't need to take. I was like, I'm going to Pittsburgh. If I have to stand outside of the hospital, I'm going to Pittsburgh. So she was like, then she immediately went from trying to get me not to go to, well, I'm coming to drive you calm down because she didn't want me going that far. She talks to the nurse. She tells me, hey, he's taking a bad turn. The doctors are going to call you. Are you alone? And I was like, no, I have my kids with me. In that process, I called James's. He might as well be his brother. It's a guy. It's one of the police officers, but they've been best friends since seventh grade. So I called Denny and I'm like, I need a police escort to get me to Pittsburgh. So the West Virginia State Police do an escort to get me to Pittsburgh. Um, he unfortunately. We were only gone about an hour and they called and asked me if I, if, if he were to code, would I want them to attempt life, uh, like CPR and to resuscitate him? And I was like, absolutely. And she said, well, his oxygen is causing us fits right now. Um, they thought he had a blood clot. They couldn't get him stable enough to go to CT. 
they went ahead and gave the medicine as if he did have a blood clot. And he ended up going into cardiac arrest, they assume, from the blood clot. And they did CPR um, for about, an, I think it was about 40 minutes. And a doctor called and told me he was gone. Um, but like I said, it, it changed. We went from the night before going to bed thinking he's coming home, he's getting better, he's going to beat this. And honestly, before we got COVID, I would have thought I would have done worse with COVID because I had more issues than him. I mean, he was young, he was healthy. He was in way better shape than I am. But in the span of nine hours, we went from him coming home to he was gone. Wow. And That's... it was just, so we didn't make it. We were, and we were about halfway to Pittsburgh, which did not help that, you know, I spent a month away from him that I couldn't be there to advocate for him and mm-hmm. to make sure. And I, I really do feel like he got amazing care. I have talked to a lot of the staff since then. And I do feel like that they cared about him, but at the same time, I couldn't be there to make sure that they were treating him like I would want him treated. Of course. I understand completely um, that whole of not being able to be with your loved one while they're in the hospital. to bring in Ebony to the conversation. Ebony, thank you so much for joining us today. I know that you too lost your partner. Would you like to share with us um, a little bit of your COVID story and how you connected with um, the Widowers group? Yes, most certainly. Thank you for having us on. Um, I came across uh, the Widows group because um, when it happened, of course, uh, just like Jerry was saying, it was a total shock. I felt uh, completely alone, and I happened to be uh, looking up uh, various articles, and I came across an article uh, with Pamela, and I read her article. I am not a uh, social media person at all, and um, but when I looked into her group, I was like, wow, this would be a great support group for me because everyone that I talked to didn't seem to understand. Uh, my husband um, and I both are educators. Um, he got COVID actually from eating at eating lunch with a co-worker. Um, I was a little bit shocked, you know, because my husband was extremely conscious and he wore two masks. Um, I just, I couldn't believe it. Um, he uh, ended up missing work and he never liked to miss because he's a teacher and he didn't like anyone else teaching his classes. And so when he missed, I thought to myself, that's odd. So I went to work on that Monday. Uh, When I came back home, he just said, you know, oh, I'm feeling a little bit better. Um, I thought everything was fine. And on Tuesday, he said, well, I'm just going to stay and I'm going to rest up a little bit more, you know, so I can be 100%. Said, great idea. I called him Tuesday on my way home from work. He took our son to taekwondo 
I thought everything again was fine because he was out and about. He says, hey, I'm going to get some NyQuil and um, everything will be fine. I said, okay. On Wednesday, I left before he did. Come to find out he didn't go to work on Wednesday. I knew something was wrong then. Uh, so I told him, I'm going to take you to get you a COVID test. And so I had taken a COVID test at work and mine came back negative. So I thought, no, nah, you don't have COVID. I don't have it. We're good. Um, but I noticed that he just didn't seem to be getting any better on that Thursday. Cause we couldn't find anywhere to get a COVID test that Wednesday, that Thursday, I went ahead and took him in to get a COVID test. He was positive. Um, I immediately went ahead and took him into the hospital, uh, because of his breathing seemed to be so labored. I tested positive on that Friday and I was admitted into the hospital four days later uh, because I was not well either. We were literally uh, five doors down from each other on the same hallway. However, they would not let us see each other. We had to call each other on the phone uh, to talk to one another. Um, Terrence seemed to be doing much better um, as time progressed. Um, but his, um, eventually his lungs ended up collapsing and they did say they wanted to put him in ICU. They put him in ICU. He did, uh, seem to make a progression where he was better. Uh, by the time he seemed better, I got released from the hospital, even though I was still testing positive for COVID. I still was sick, but of course they didn't, um, see a need for me to be in the hospital and so um, they began to wean him off of the oxygen because he was getting oxygen support. They weaned him off of sedation um, where um, the last night before my husband passed, um, I always ended our calls with love you, love you, love you, Terrence. And he actually responded back by saying love you too, babe. And I, I just didn't think anything of it. The next day I, I slept in kind of like Jerry. I felt rested because I felt like it was fine. I thought it was better. And I ended up calling and they told me that his oxygen levels were dropping. And I was like, how can that be? I mean, he was almost at 100% last night. What are you talking about? And they said, we'll call you back. And I'm like, call me back? What do you need to call me back about? So I asked, I said, well, I tell you what. I said, I called him back again. And I said, if you just let me talk to him, I said, if he hears my voice. I said, it'll be fine. They said, okay, give us some time to get him stable. We'll call you back. No one called me back. I called back again. They finally answered and they said, we're going to set, set up the Zoom call for you. And I said, okay. I said, how long do I wait? And they said about 30 minutes. So I waited and no one called. So finally someone called me back and said he just had a heart attack. And I was like, what do you mean he just had a heart attack? And they said, you know, we think that he has air on his chest. And they asked me, could they get my approval to put in another tube? I said, absolutely. And they said, well, um, if he um, has a cardiac arrest again, we don't know that he will come back. And I said, oh, no. I said, he's a fighter. I said, he's coming back. And I said, y'all just go ahead and put the tube in. I said, call me when you're done. I said, because he'll be fine. It was 30 minutes later, they called me and they let me know that Terrence passed. So he was in the hospital 23 days. And so I was, for lack of a better word, devastated because I really, I could see him coming out. I, I, I just felt like we were on the uphill and we literally were just on a roller coaster and went down 
I felt like in, to me, it felt like, golly, I want to say like five minutes. And I know it wasn't five minutes, but that's how it felt. It just felt like it was, it was just so drastic from being better to worse in no time flat. I just, before we jump into the conversation about this, these devastating losses uh, for our community and for your families, I just want to take a moment to um, appreciate all three of you sharing your stories and also just to say that their lives mattered in that the work that you all are doing and sharing their stories is having is not only having an incredible impact for others, um, but people need to hear these stories. So it's such a way to honor their memory and do right by them. So um, James and Terrence and Martin, you are missed. And man, you have left behind incredible partners um, who are doing really important work. Pamela, I know, um, you know, you, um, have joined the call before you were, you know, with us on November 25th of last year. I'm curious to say, what are, you know, since then, what are some of the issues that you are seeing um, widows in your group facing that are not getting the attention that they need, quite frankly? I feel like one of the largest things is a lot, so many of them have lost their homes. And I feel like that's just devastating because their kids have not only lost their parent, they've now lost like the house with all the memories that they shared with their parent. And it's like the only house they knew. Um, I think that's one of the really big ones, like figuring out how to survive without your spouse. And what happens once a family loses their homes? Are there any, is there any assistance? Are there any government programs or is this just resulting in these families needing to lean into their, you know, whatever community support they might have. Yeah. And like, or downsize to something that they can afford. I know a lot of women, widows have done that or like move to a different state because mm -hmm. it's cheaper to live. Mm -hmm. I feel like the assistance that most of us get is with having GoFundMe pages or other, you know, crowdfunding type of pages. That's probably the most assistance we have probably gotten and it shouldn't be that way that we rely on, you know, people who know us to, you know, donate a few dollars so we can, you know, survive without our spouse. And, you know, depending on who you know and where you live, you know, your GoFundMes are successful or not, or who shares your story. So I feel like the people who really need it are not getting it. That really resonates with me, not only from what I anticipate my journey would have been had my dad passed um, when I was a teenager, but also, I, you know, within the Mark by COVID community, I've known multiple widows who have had to move to different states because of uh, cost of living or move in with family members. And it feels to me that there really is no acknowledgement that the families left behind are financially struggling due to the fact that they lost a breadwinner. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, Jerry and Ebony, I'd love to pull you into this. Um, 
uh, you know, loss of income, loss of homes is a huge issue uh, facing your, your community. Are there other issues that really, um, you know, spring to the top of mind that you all have seen uh, with your community or even with, um, you know, in your own family that isn't being, you know, really addressed right now? Um, I really think, I mean, one of the biggest things is my kids. Like, I just worry about, you know, <laughs> there is so much like, you know, I, I teach in the primary grades. I taught second grade for the past five years until this year I've moved to third grade. But, you know, I, I remember looking at my classes before and the kids who statistically struggle or, you know, don't really care about school or things like that or get in trouble are the kids who don't come from a two parent household or, um, you know, and both of my kids, like Tyler's graduated out of school, but both of my girls, you know, they love school, good students. And now I see it's crazy. And, and from last fall to this fall, they've become one of those statistics. And I just, I mean, we're, I have them both in therapy, but at this point, therapy's getting to the point where I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to be able to afford it. Um, Cause it's getting kind of outrageous every other week. Um, I think before, you know, before our insurance year, fiscal year started over, it was okay because we had so many deductibles where James had over a million dollars in medical bills. So our deductibles and co-pays were met um, that it's really just started here in the past two months or so with me getting the actual bills for the therapy. And while I know that they, drastically need it I don't want to sacrifice other areas to pay for their therapy I mean they so. also need to live in a house and have food to eat and yeah and yeah well, to be able to go to work I mean those um, are really we have like we had a really big house this is our third house that James and I have bought together it's actually a three-story house um, it was our dream home going to be our forever home and I remember in the first few weeks so many people were like, are you going to stay in that house? Are you going to stay in your house? And I've said from the beginning that I'll kind of do whatever I have to do if I have to work a second job or a third job because my kids' memories with their dad are here. Like if we leave and Julia, my 12-year-old, heard somebody one day ask and she was like, do we have to move? And it got her really upset because she doesn't want to leave this house where her dad lives. So, I mean, my heart goes out to the ones that are having to, but like we've tried to cut back in other areas just because I did go, I mean, I did go from a two income house to a, and like the day he passed away, I didn't get any more money from the Marine Corps, which he was getting a disability retirement and my children got a disability retirement. But once he died, that no longer continues for my girl's which I still don't make sense of, but I mean, that was a huge chunk of income that's gone. Oh yeah. So we've just tried, I mean, my main focus has been to try to make sure that I do keep the house mm -hmm. just because my girl's memories are here. Um, and that makes me, you know, think a little bit too about, I know all three of you um, are educators and in the school system. Oh, we just lost Ebony. I was going to ask her a question. So I'll pivot to Pamela <laughs> and we'll bring her in when she comes back. I know she's um, 
in transport right now. Um, you know, the impact of this pandemic on, you know, school-aged children, um, I mean, what are, what are schools, are schools equipped to handle this type of grief? What sort of support have you received slash, you know, are you seeing um, schools receive and um, what more needs to be done? Um, in my county, oh, sorry. In my county, um, last year when it happened, um, the staff of both of my girls' schools were very supportive, um, kind of realized what they were going through and tried to be there for them and kind of go lenient on if assignments weren't turned in or on absences to go to therapy. But there aren't a lot of kids in our area that I, there are no other kids that I can think of that are my kids age who have lost a parent, like in our small community here. Um, James was unfortunately kind of the poster child for our area to wake up like, Hey, it's can be young people also. Um, but I mean, we do like we have social workers and stuff in school and i think that i mean there would be assistance but i think they're not per se that they're doing a bad job or anything i just wish there were more resources um, because the way we're going it doesn't look like it's slowing down anytime soon for it, it's just a matter of time before it will affect someone else locally I think there's also like this influx of now kids being affected by the pandemic, but then there's all the kids who've already had services for other reasons. So I just think staffing is an issue too. Like there's not enough staff to address the needs now of kids. And I also feel like teachers need to be trained because I just feel like there is, there is no understanding, like a lot of teachers. I mean, I understand because my child has gone through something, but teachers don't understand like when there's a trauma, like kids relive that trauma. My, like Elsie in developmental stages relives losing her dad and cause she has a deeper understanding. So she's a different person. Like she went back to what she was in April of 2020, a few weeks ago. Mm. And that's gonna happen throughout her life as she hits those developmental stages and she's gonna be in school. And I want her teacher to be trained to understand that. Or at least have some awareness that Absolutely. she's acting not like herself or her grades are bombing a few weeks or something. That there's, it's not because she's doing it on purpose. There's a reason. And I right. feel like there's just like, I feel like a lot of people don't understand that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that so much. And uh, Ebony, I know we lost you for a second, um, but I'd love to pull you back into um, the conversation. We are just sharing um, some of the issues facing um, your children that might not be getting enough um, attention from, you know, local national media or from a policy perspective. And was wondering if there was anything you'd like to add into that. I think we might have lost her again. Well, Ebony, if 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 your line clears up, feel free to jump back in. But I'm going to uh, pivot to um, to Pamela again. You know, you raised a couple of really important issues from both 
um, you know, how do we keep families in their home and support families to how, you know, are we doing enough to really address um, the training support that educators and others need to be able to be with our children as they continue to grow and um, have to grow with this trauma of loss. And I'm, you know, these are two issues that I have not, you know, I'm aware of from interacting with the, the greater COVID community, but I can't say that I have seen um, anybody from a policy perspective or even really media stations uh, reporting on this. Is that true from from what you've been seeing? Yeah, I feel like this is stuff that's so important, but not talked about enough. Mm-hmm. And that's why I try to go to Twitter a lot of the times. Like anytime I see something with Elsie and I know about it because I'm living it, I want to share it because I think there is this like idea that these kids are okay or it's not affecting them in such a traumatic like uh, impactful way but it is and I want people to understand what it's like because I feel like it isn't being talked about mm-hmm. yeah like I our- feel like you know with all the talk about the anti-masks and stuff I've noticed that those conversations you know, people seem to joke about it constantly and treat COVID like it is a joke or it is a hoax. And then my kids have to hear that when to my children, you know, it's very real. It's very real to us and it always will be. Uh, you know, not only did they lose dad, they lost granny within a six week span. And, you know, when people are talking about how masks don't work and this and that, you know, it's, I don't want them to hear those conversations and I try to shield them from it, protect them from it because I don't want them to ever feel like we lost their dad or their granny and that it didn't matter. You know, that they're not just a number or they're not a part of some government conspiracy that, you know, COVID was real, but these people that have these conversations that affect, I, that's been my biggest fear is that my kids will hear this other stuff like you know no matter how much i pour into their mental health with therapy or you know positive support systems they're still going to run into people who they have to hear that stuff from and it's not i mean it's just something i've tried to avoid and pray that they don't run into it's not not i'm really glad that you I'm really glad that you raised that up, Jerry, because it makes me, it actually reminds me of some of my thinking shortly after I lost my dad and how um, so many people, um, you know, kind of came out of the woodwork to say, you know, well, you know, did he have pre-existing conditions? Like what, you know, what was the reason why he died? Are you, you know, all of this kind of questioning and like, you know, are you sure he really even had COVID? And you know, as I was going through the beginning stages of my of my grief process, I, I kept on thinking about being a child myself. And, you know, I did really well in school and I loved school and I loved learning, but I could not remember being taught about the the uh, uh, the 1918 flu uh, or really any other public health crises. And 
um, I started to think about like, what about that stigma that, you know, people will be carrying if we don't actually daylight that this was real, that it had profound impacts and that we need to, you know, address that. And it's actually a big reason why uh, Mark by COVID um, has been advocating for a permanent COVID Memorial Day, not only so that we can have space and time to honor the memory of those who have been lost um, and, you know, those who have, you know, been on the front lines, but also to be a tool for us to really put a line in the sand to say, no, this was real and it had right. profound impacts so that kids can actually have space to sort of grapple with the complexities of what it means to be a child who's, who lived through COVID, who lost a parent to COVID. And so I'm just, I want to bring um, you all in on that about, you know, what would, uh, you know, permanent COVID Memorial Day mean to your families? A permanent Memorial Day would mean the ton to us, you know, like James was a veteran. So like Veterans Day, you know, was a big day in our house. Like if there was a day that was set aside to honor them. And then even if there was a memorial somewhere that my kids could go and see that, you know, hey, there's my dad's name or this is the COVID memorial, just stuff like that. I mean, I want my kids to know for years to come. I mean, it's not like they're getting over this. They have to live with it. Um, I just, I think it would be huge. I mean, it, I mean, especially for us or, anyone that's lost somebody to it. And I hope it eventually happens. Yeah, it will definitely help in the healing process too, because it validates the fact that it did right. happen. It validates the loss that our children have suffered and us too. But I really feel it's like crucial for the children. And, you know, as a teacher, every time there's a holiday, there's always the day before or the, you know, the Friday before the Monday off, you teach about it you teach your students why we celebrate that holiday or why we have that day off. So I feel like if there was a permanent COVID Memorial Day, teachers can talk about, you know, the COVID pandemic and what happened and why it happened. And then our children can be part of the discussion because they will have that personal experience that they did lose someone to it and they can share. And I feel like in sharing that helps you heal. Right. And their classmates can like respect them and, you know, understand a little bit more of what their friend went through or has mm -hmm. gone through. Ebony, I think we have you back. Can you hear us? Oh, I don't think we actually have Ebony back. Um, I'd love to bring you back into this conversation, but um, we'll keep on trucking along. Um, and I, I thank you both for, you know, your, your comments on just what sort of that day and time can mean. And I absolutely agree with you, Pamela. I, um, you know, I, the things that I do remember from, um, you know, my elementary school education was I always looked forward to Black History Month. And it was an opportunity that we got to learn about some really incredible people and um, and some incredible people that, you know, I, I didn't know many. There weren't many black children in my neighborhood. And so we had a couple of of, of girls in my class who um, were, you know, African-American. And it was so cool to 
learn about their experience and some of the visionary leaders um, from their community. Um, and that was a really important um, way for me to understand um, sort of the unique struggles for that community, but also, you know, kind of instilled in me a, a curiosity towards uh, racial justice and um, sort of larger systems at play. And so when I think about that, sort of being able to have Elsie be part of that conversation, it really will generate empathy for the children, you know, around her to, you know, see that story in the context of we have an entire holiday for this. Um, and I think it's a way for Elsie to feel really validated, but also really proud about, you know, her dad and and the sacrifice that, um, you know, he gave in order to be on the front lines. Um, I'm wondering from both of you, um, if you, um, if you had five minutes with President Biden, I'm wondering what um, you'd like to say to him. I'll let Pam go first. <laughs> um, you know, I feel like when he was elected, I was very hopeful that more would be done for the COVID loss community. I feel like there are things he's done to help the pandemic move in the right direction, but I feel like those who have lost their lives and the people who have lost someone they have they love are still being left behind and not acknowledged. And especially for me, my husband was a healthcare worker. He was on the front lines. He is a true hero to this pandemic. I would like for him to acknowledge that my husband, you know, did an amazing job and he's, you know, and give him some sort of like honor, like you do other, you know, people who risk their lives and lose their lives. So for me, I feel like just don't forget about us um, because my children are going to live a life of a very long life without their papa and he should still be here. And I, I can't, let them ever feel like their papa's been forgotten and Martin shouldn't be forgotten. So that's what I basically say to him. Don't forget about the families that are left behind. Jerry? I'm kind of in the same position. I do feel like that we have been sort of forgotten. Um, and even now, so, I mean, I'm only eight months out. Um, and I know that Pamela's about eight months ahead of me, I guess. Um, it does kind of feel like everyone just kind of went on and the country tried to move on and we're still dealing with it and we will forever be dealing with it. Um, a friend told me the other night that we can't be fixed. We don't want to be fixed. We just need somebody to acknowledge how we're feeling. Like I'm not, when I get upset or if I'm having a bad day, it's not that I want somebody to fix me. I just want somebody to acknowledge what I've been through or where we've been. Um, I got really upset like with the whole incentives to get the vaccine and things like that. I feel like all that money that was given to people as prizes and things to get them to get the shot should have went to those of us who lost our person before there even was a shot, you know, like, I know in West Virginia, we give out, the governor gives out 
He gave out like $5 million and he's given out trucks and cars and football tickets. And it's, I mean, it's a little contest to get people to get vaccinated, but that money could have went to the lives of the widows or the families or that have been left behind. I think the money could have been dispersed better. I'm so um, happy that you brought up that issue because I remember whenever I saw the, um, the, the different contests um, across the country starting to encourage people to vaccinate, my very first thing I remember saying is, well, what about the 53,000 children who lost a parent? Like, what about them? And, you know, I myself am not a parent, but I feel very I care about the children of this country. This is this is the future. And this is a country in which it should not depend on where you were born or what you look like or your zip code or if your loved one, you know, accidentally got caught up in this pandemic and passed need to be determined. Um, so I find this very personal because I know that there is a Kristen out there that has now an uncertain future because they lost their parent and somebody needs to be fighting for them. Um, Ebony, do we have you back? Ah, yes, we have you back. Am I back? I would love <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, you're here. I just go into the conference. Um, you know, any thoughts on, you know, what you'd like to communicate to President Biden if you, um, had five minutes with him? Well, just, just the same sentiments. I think that mine, of course, is from an educator's uh, standpoint. Um, when I look at, um, just like what Pamela says, you know, about her husband, um, a first uh, responder, first line of defense, and, and same thing with Jerry's, I, I feel like educators, they're, they're, they were never considered uh, first responders. I don't understand that. I still don't. Um, I don't understand why we were not part of the first people to get vaccines. I, I don't understand that. And now we are. Um, and so, you know, to me, my husband was out there he was working with kids, trying to make sure that they were educated as we all all were. And even in the midst of not understanding, I, I just, I think that everyone needs to be honored. I, I will piggyback on uh, Jerry and saying, you know, the money that was given out for these vaccines, we have children and we have lost so much that most certainly, I'm gonna be honest with you, money can't make up for it, but it would certainly help because financially we have been impacted. We're grasping, trying to make it mentally. We're grasping, trying to make it physically, emotionally. It is a lot. It is a big weight that we have to carry and just some sort of support, some sort of acknowledgement and not this, we've got to go back to normal statement. That statement is hurtful. And I just, I don't understand a lot of different things other than the fact of that if you don't have to go through it, you don't understand it. And I just wish that we had more services so that way people are more empathetic and that way they can be more sensitive with the things that they say. So that, that's what I'd like to say. Thank you so much, Ebony. Um, I you know, don't want to keep you all too much longer because I know that um, you got to jump back into being solo parents. But uh, just sort of a final word, um, you know, I'm curious, 
you know, if um, kind of going back to these issues of resources, um, of grief counseling, you know, what do you think needs to happen in the course of the next six months to get on track of really supporting children, in particular, the children that, that you know, are in your homes um, and in the, the community that you serve um, to really start to get on track? Definitely grief counseling. And I feel like there needs to be something to make it less expensive because it is really expensive to send your kids to therapy. And the sad thing is some people can't afford it and that's why their kids can't get it. And there just needs to be something for these kids because without it, they're, they're not going to, their lives can, are really going to be impacted and we need to support them. I see it. I mean, in my school district, there's 42 children that have lost a caregiver. So Mm-hmm. There, there's going to be a lot of emotions there. And I feel like before they can even learn, they need to deal with their trauma, their grief, because that's mm-hmm. going to be a huge roadblock for them. And until it's addressed, they're going to fall further and further behind. Right. Well, on that note, um, we are going to wrap up Um, this really interesting conversation about the impact of COVID on our children, in particular kids who have lost a parent. I am today joined by Pamela Addison, Ebony Janes, and Jerry uh, Vance, who are all part of the Facebook group uh, COVID-19 Widow and Widowers, which was started by Pamela. Um, Thank you so much for taking a little bit of time out of your day to spend this with us and our audience And, um, you know, on a personal note, I look forward to doing everything in my power and supporting you all in this really important work to ensure that our children are not forgotten, that our loved ones are not forgotten. And to the point that Ebony just made that we stop joking around with this idea that, you know, things are normal because things aren't normal. Mm -hmm. Things will never be normal, especially for your children and your families. So thank you so much for being here today and to everyone for tuning in.